Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, last week, One Energy deployed the nation's first all-digital substation here in Findlay, an early first step toward the long-overdue modernization of America's electrical grid. We'll learn more. Also this morning, how did you observe yesterday's anniversary of 9-11? One Tuesday morning is a Manhattan ER nurse's emotional plea not to let the day she will never forget become just a footnote in history. In an effort to boost sagging recruitment numbers, the U.S. Army has launched a campaign to show potential soldiers just how far their first steps to a military career can take you. And September is Baby Safety Month. We have advice for new and first-time parents on protecting that precious little bundle of joy. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Tuesday, September 12, 2023. So if you are uh, just waking up this morning, this is kind of interesting to know early in the morning, a new study out of the UK reveals seven habits that help prevent depression, seven habits to help prevent depression. And number one on the list, well, I don't know if it's number one on the list. I don't know that these are in any particular order, but the first one that I see on the list, the seven habits that help prevent depression, a good night's sleep. So, if you want to roll over and hit the snooze button, more power to you. Um, The others, moderate alcohol consumption, a nutritious diet, physical activity, and uh, not smoking. Uh, One, two, three, four, five. What are the other two? Oh, uh, low to moderate sedentary behavior, um, which kind of goes along with physical activity, and maintaining an active social life are the other two. Um, oh, it does say getting a good night's sleep had the biggest impact. So it is number one on the list. It reduces, uh, reduces the risk of depression by 22%. Um, (laughs) and if you're a New York Jets fan, if you got a good night's sleep, if you went to bed before Monday night football started, then you are probably less depressed this morning. (laughs) So you think about it that way. Um, So socializing reduced depression risk by 18%. That was uh, factor number two. And this is not a small sample. They uh, analyzed data from nearly 300,000 individuals. Um, And uh, what they concluded was that lifestyle likely has a bigger impact than genetics when it comes to depression. Uh, Dr. Christelle, uh, Christelle Langley The University of Cambridge in the UK says we're used to thinking of a healthy lifestyle as being important to our physical health, but it is just important to our mental health. So good night's sleep uh, is one of the is the top uh, habit that can help uh, prevent depression. Um, On the other hand, uh, you know, just to be fair, um, those who are early birds get up early in the morning are less likely to develop type 2 diabetes than are night owls. This study, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, finds that people who prefer to stay up late, even if it is due to their natural circadian rhythm, their natural body clock, uh, those who stay up late tend to eat worse and exercise less. They are also more likely to smoke and to sleep less than... Uh, early birds, night owls had a 19% greater chance of developing type 2 diabetes as a result. So, 
you are an early bird, perhaps you are more depressed, but you don't have diabetes. So it's a trade-off. <laughs> it's always a trade-off. That's... Uh, let's see. What else is going on? Among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Do you turn off your porch light at night? Um, apparently, if you don't, you should. Because a research project from North Carolina State University, NC State, finds that artificial light could be contributing to decreasing bird populations, specifically catbirds and wrens. Um, Light pollution does seem to help the survival rate of the American robin, however. Uh, Researchers use data from the Neighborhood Nest Program over the course of the past 20 years uh, for their, their study into this. And while a connection was found between light pollution um, while a connection was found with light pollution, noise pollution did not seem to have an adverse impact on these birds. So quiet time at night is no big deal. But turn off your porch light, apparently. There is an effort in bird conservation to keep common birds common, according to the authors of the study. We're lucky to have our backyard birds, and we want to keep it that way. So I we leave our porch light on, and it's uh, because I've heard, and... Anecdotally, it seems to have worked for us. Um, we had bats that were like getting into our soffit in our front porch. We leave the uh, porch light on. We don't have that problem. So and we didn't want bats in our in our soffit. So that was what we were told to do, and it seems to, to work. So we keep our – but I don't know. Maybe it's uh, – we don't have bats. We don't have wrens either. So I guess uh, there is something to that. just thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, this is what we are worried about today. Every day, there has to be some story about some, you know, uh, tragedy or, or you know, uh, something to be fearful of, something to wring our hands and worry about, uh, whatever. Here is uh, today's such story. Uh, researchers at the University of Georgia and Georgia Tech are cooperating. Georgia and Georgia Tech don't cooperate on too many things. Uh, But according to this research, they find that Georgians are losing their famous southern draw. (laughs) Their favorite, their famous southern draw of Georgians is going away. Uh, According to this research, um, uh, residents have been shifting away from the standard Georgian accent over the past few generations. Uh, the study shows it really became noticeable with Gen Xers and is even more pronounced with Gen Z. But this dates, this trend dates all the way back to post-World War II with an influx of Northerners moving into the Peach State. So, <laughs> okay, the, one more reason why we need to kick these Northerners out. The Georgians are losing their drawl. So that's what we're worried about today. Whatever will we do? Georgians are losing their drawl. And a couple of other items here among the first things you need to know this morning. This is kind of interesting on the uh, Newswire. The scientist who helped create the world's first cloned sheep has died. Remember uh, Dolly the Sheep? Uh, The Roslyn Institute near Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland 
announced that Ian Wilmot passed away on Sunday at the age of 79 from Parkinson's disease. He and his team of scientists shocked the world in 1997 when they announced the birth of Dolly the Cloned Sheep. Uh, the sheep was named after Dolly Parton. I didn't know that. Maybe I did know that and I had forgotten. Anyway, um, the cloned sheep Dolly was born in secrecy in July of 1996. And Dolly actually passed away in February of 2003. In an interview with the New York Times following the death of Dolly the sheep, uh, Mr. Wilmot called the sheep a very friendly animal that was a part of a big scientific breakthrough. I thought it was uh, rather ironic that uh, Ian Wilmot the scientist who led the team that cloned Dolly to the sheep uh, passed away from Parkinson's disease because uh, it's much of the same type of science that led to the cloned sheep has been um, being used in research to address things like Parkinson's disease and other uh, conditions such as that. But it certainly uh, was a seminal moment in scientific history and to this day still reverberates in terms of scientific and medical ethics and uh, things like that. It is uh, still a uh, very controversial thing. And finally, in the among the first things that you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, the biggest news stories of the day, the first things you need to know, uh, the Brady Bunch house has sold. You hear about this? Uh, HGTV. You remember a few years ago, Home and Garden Television bought the Brady Bunch house, renovated it so that the inside looked like the Brady Bunch house that we all remember because the exterior shots did not match the interior. Never did. Um, But HGTV bought the house when it went up for sale a few years ago and renovated it, made it part of a, a big show, the very Brady renovation, got huge ratings. Uh, well, they were done with it, so they put it back on the market. Now, they bought it for $3.2 million and put uh, close to $2 million into the renovation. And they uh, they sold it for $5.5 million. They listed it for $5.5 million, but word is that it sold closer to the $3 million uh, range. I guess we can look it up and find his public record. But anyway... Uh, the Los Angeles residents famous for serving as the exterior shot of the beloved 1970s sitcom. Uh, let's see here. Underwent $1.9 million in renovation and expansion, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Tina Trahan, an ardent fan of the show, is the new owner of the Brady Bunch house and plans to utilize the home for charitable events. How nice would that be? To be able to buy a $3 million home just to use it for charitable events. You know, just to, just, just because. <laughs> I mean, if I paid $3 million for a home, I'd want to live in it. You know, I don't know about you, but there you go. Some of the uh, most interesting, but uh, the Brady Bunch house now once again in private hands. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Tuesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Some showers today with a high in the low 70s, partly cloudy tonight, a low in the mid-50s. The Be Healthy Now Hancock County Community Health Fair and Food Distribution will be held on Saturday at the Kaler Center on the University of Finley campus.
Zach Thomas is Director of Wellness and Education at the Hancock County Board of Alcohol, Drug Addiction, and Mental Health Services. There'll be kids' activities, Why on the Fly will be there, um, so there'll be opportunity for the entire family to be engaged. He says the event gets underway at 10, and the food distribution will take place between noon and 2 outside the Kaler Center. Get more on this upcoming health fair and food distribution event in the story on our website. Ohioans could be voting on a wage issue in a little over a year, and the restaurant industry is bracing for it. The Raise the Wage Ballot Committee is hoping to put on the November 2024 ballot to bring the state minimum wage for tipped employees up from $5.05 an hour to 15 The Ohio Restaurant Association surveyed its members this summer. 81% do not support a $15 an hour wage, as nearly all report that finding and keeping staff and the increasing cost of goods are the hardest hurdles. ONN's Bree Buckley reporting. Finley City Council has created a committee to discuss a proposal from Habitat for Humanity of Hancock County to develop approximately 26 acres of city-owned property along Carlin Street. Depending on the recommendation from the committee, any transfer of property would have to go through full city council. Additionally, any development of the property would still have to go through the standard city planning commission and planning and zoning committee processes. Get more on our website. Browns play-by-play man Jim Donovan with an emotional update on his cancer battle at the end of the Browns' win over the Bengals. Donovan has battled leukemia off and on for more than 20 years and had a bone marrow transplant in 2011. He revealed in the spring that it had returned. Donovan said he's taking time off. I am going to have to step away to continue treatment of this relapse of leukemia that I have had. And I promise I'll be a listener and I'll be back as soon as I can. Donovan said in May that he's beaten leukemia before and plans to do it again. Dave James, I went in news. Don't forget, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. So for years, experts have said that the American electric grid is in desperate need of modernization because of increased cyber threats, the deployment of alternative energy sources, growing demand due to electric vehicles and such, and just out of the fact that we have an aging infrastructure. Well, last week, Findlay-based One Energy took the first step in that daunting process by deploying the first fully digital electric substation in the United States. And joining us to explain the significance of this are One Energy's head of regulatory affairs, Katie Treadway, and director of engineering, Brian Kirkendall. And thank you both for taking the time this morning. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. So first of all, before we get into all of this, let's talk a little bit about the growth of One Energy over the past 10 years or so, uh, you have grown to be a major player in the industrial wind power industry. That's right, Chris. Yeah. So One Energy has been operating and in business since 2009. Uh, it's been quite a journey since then. Uh, and right now we are the largest behind the meter wind provider in the country, actually. So this, and and it's all you know based, again, right here in Findlay, which is uh, really cool. So this uh, digital electric substation, the first of its kind to be deployed in the U.S., it too is in Findlay, right? Yep, that's correct. It's on our site here in Findlay, Ohio. And how does this work in layman's terms? Uh, so the, the, the best way to describe it is a giant extension cord. So if you, if you need lots of power, you, you want to step the voltage up to a very high level and access to that is very challenging for the general public as well as commercial operators. And so we're here to provide that large extension cord. 
And is that uh, substantively different than the way any substation operates? I mean, is there something uh, unique about a fully digital substation in terms of the operation that's any different than what we've always had? I mean, the general principles of the substation, a substation, really the basic uh, definition of a substation is a change of voltage from a high voltage to a low voltage or the other way around. Mm -hmm. And so... What, what we're doing is, is how you actually operate and maintain the substation. So previous to what we've done here, you would have anywhere from, uh, six to 10 different copper cables. And the challenge there is safety. And so anytime you're dealing with copper and electricity, you don't want to get shocked. And so what we do is we, we reduce the, the safety down to a single cable of copper, which provides simply power and fiber for everything else so that mm. we can can do the talking of the substation between the devices that need to communicate. And I would imagine not only uh, does that make it safer to install and operate, but also maintain? Yes, it makes it very simple to maintain. If there's ever an issue, we can do a complete swap out in, in less than a day. Wow. So help us understand how this addresses some of those concerns about the uh, U.S. power grid. For example, uh, to the average person, it might seem as though a digital substation or ultimately a digital power grid would be more susceptible to cyber attacks, not less. Well, when it comes to the digital aspect of the substation, um, the, the, the security and the protection of it, there, there's really more than just it being digital. It's everything else that we're doing around it. So uh, a lot of the, the utilities out there, they currently have just regular, uh, chain link fences around their substations and they're, they're being required to make changes to that. But our substations are coming with completely bulletproof walls, hmm. buildings, as much as we can do economically to make that happen. And, and, so, and so for some context on that, too, uh, you may have seen in the news in the last several years, there's been a number of attacks on substations where mm-hmm. people guns and tried to attack a substation. Yeah. So as we are trying to redesign and look at the substations of the future, we're trying to take into account what are the risks that we've seen for current substations and how can we mitigate those risks? Um, another uh, important safety and security feature that we've incorporated here too is the substation's ability to self-extinguish fires and uh, also the type of oil that we use makes it much less of a fire risk as well because something else you may have seen in the news is that you know there are substations that will catch fire from time to time and they will burn for days and knock out power for thousands of people mm-hmm. and so when there are technologies available that can mitigate those risks we're taking a hard look at what those risks are and how we can mitigate and how we can innovate to make substations better and uh, more able to serve customers today. So that actually speaks to the next question that I wanted to ask, which is why is this 20th, uh, 21st century technology so critical to addressing all of those other issues surrounding an aging infrastructure, such as meeting the demand for electric vehicles, integrating renewable energy, uh, increasing energy efficiency, so on and so forth. Sure. So uh, as we... As we add electric vehicles, as we, as we add more what we call base load to the system, mm-hmm. we're going to need significantly more substations in general. And we're going to need to be able to operate them in a, in a way that is more efficient. So in the past, if you look at the electric, electric industry over the past 100 years, you have substations that are over 100 years old now. And some of them have very dilapidated equipment. 
And so we're going to need to be able to rapidly deploy new substations to take over some of, some of that load or some of the switching there so that we can continue to operate in a way that people walk into their bedroom, turn on their light switch and the light turns on. Uh, as well as electric vehicles, you want to be able to make sure that you can make that road trip. We need to make sure that we have enough of these deployed so that people don't have the the uh, fear of not having power for their vehicles to get across country. So the big question, is this just a one-off uh, or are enough other companies buying into this that it will be the future or just a footnote? And if it is the future, um, why is there only one? I mean, why aren't these things going in everywhere? So we believe this is absolutely the future. Uh, we don't see this as a one-off at all. Um, the utility industry as it exists today and just the way the grid as it exists today, it really isn't built to innovate. Um, utilities don't operate with innovation in mind. Uh, typically, the way you see it most across most of the United States is that if you are an end-use customer, you really only have one choice for your distribution or transmission electricity provider. And because uh, traditionally people haven't been able to go out and find new providers, it leads to a situation where there isn't much of a um, motivation to innovate. Uh, One Energy couldn't be more opposite in the way we view the electric industry. We believe that it's imperative for the electric industry to, to begin uh, innovating to make sure that we have reliable, safe, and available electricity for uh, not only customers today, but all of the emerging industries to come. And again, as uh, director or the uh, head of regulatory affairs, uh, Katie, you can speak to this. What role, what is the appropriate level of incentivization for companies to not be complacent moving forward and actually, again, do this, deploy these uh, types of technologies? Yeah. So for one energy, I mean, the real motivation is. Um, serving customers and bringing customers what they want. Um, you know, we be- believe that customers rule the day and we want to be able to offer them a product and access to electricity that is safe, reliable, available, and is um, fast and responsive to what their needs are. Uh, the traditional uh, electric grid is not really any of those things. You know, there's long wait times. Um, it's very technically complex. Brian mentioned that it's like an extension cord. Maybe for him, it's an extension cord, but for <laughs> many, just trying to understand all of the technical complexities of both how these substations work, um, how the regulatory environment around them works, uh, how you go about getting access to the transmission lines. It's just, it, it's difficult. So, so what we do is we help those customers navigate that process from soup to nuts everything from the physical infrastructure to navigating that regulatory environment so they can get what they need, which is power, without having to become full-on experts themselves. And then the other big question, uh, and I hear a lot of people uh, saying, is uh, what's the cost and and who pays for all of this and how? So traditionally, uh, it's ratepayers that end up paying for uh, upgrades and new transmission systems. That's the way the traditional model is. Um, with the way that, you know, with how One Energy does things, it's private investment. Um, it's the investment of One Energy and our investors. Um, and we're providing those private systems to our uh, private customers. So it's a very different model where we're asking people to, we're putting the capital behind it. 
Again, uh, Katie Treadway, Brian Kirkendall with uh, Findlay-based One Energy talking about the uh, first uh, fully digital electric substation being deployed right here in Findlay, first one in the United States. You have more about this uh, on your website if folks are so inclined to go in and and learn more about this? Yep, absolutely. OneEnergy.com. Very good. Once again, Katie Treadway is head of regulatory affairs. Brian Kirkendall is director of engineering for One Energy. Thank you both for taking the time this morning. We appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you. So yesterday, as you know, was the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. Did you attend a memorial service? Did you perform a community service project, as has become tradition to mark the day? Did you even stop for a moment of silence to mark the moment when our world was changed forever, when that first plane hit the World Trade Center Tower? The further we get from that day, the less common these observances are. But Catherine Dubrino will never forget it. She was an emergency room nurse in Manhattan, and her new book is called One Tuesday Morning. Catherine, when someone says 9-11 to you, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, a lot of sadness, a lot of disbelief and uncertainty at that time. I've heard that Every hospital in New York was preparing for the rush of casualties from the World Trade Center that tragically never came. I can't even imagine how crushing that must have been when the reality began to set in that no one is coming because no one survived. It was very, it was very um, heart wrenching. Um, we initially got a lot of service personnel. That's what we were getting when the attacks first occurred, and we were saying to, among ourselves, "See, something's wrong. Why aren't regular civilian people coming in?" And then the reality set in that, unfortunately, there weren't that many survivors. Yeah. Did you did you get uh, some kind of a rush? Though I would imagine that uh, I'm sure you saw you saw quite a few people who were kind of caught up in the in the smoke and the debris, uh, you know, breathing issues or or injuries from being caught in all of it, or or maybe just people in shock. Yes, we, we had what we call the walking wounded that walked in. I remember one patient I took care of, had a fractured leg. She got caught in the elevator. Mm. Um, but uh, more, more of the service personnel with breathing issues, we had to give them oxygen, cuts and bruises, things like that. Obviously, an event like this is something that you pray will never happen again. But then, 20 years later, here comes the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it granted, a very different type of tragedy. But like 9-11, it really put the spotlight on the heroic work that those in the medical profession do. Um, I guess that's one of the things, again, coming out of 9-11 is that appreciation for uh, just how critical uh, these individuals are. Oh, certainly, yes. It puts a spotlight on the um, the medical profession for sure, and also all our first responders. We're, we're always at the ready to help others. Like we give up our own families, what we're trying with our families to be there for others to help serve them and, and make them better. And we referenced the COVID pandemic. Uh, that also led to some very high stress and burnout among those in the profession. How similar was that to 
what you experienced uh, in 9-11 uh, on that day and in the aftermath. Did you see a lot of people walk away from the profession after September 11th? Um, no, no, not particularly. A few people who were there, they, um, I, I personally only know one that I work with left the profession. But a lot of them, they either moved closer to where they came from home, moved closer to their families. But I think most of us stayed in the profession. The reason I bring it up is that while, again, this is obviously something that you pray will never happen again, the world is a dangerous place. And I shudder to think about another large-scale event or disaster uh, overwhelming the healthcare system. Yeah, but I, I think everybody's concerned about that. I have since retired from that. I didn't work during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But people who, my colleagues who did work, I, I empathized with them, and they were, they were very overwhelmed. I think it was more the frustration that even the greatest minds around the world couldn't figure out what this disease was. Right. I think that frustrated it because we're always there to help and heal. And even you give it 110% and then people pass away, it's heart-wrenching because you know you gave it all and it's just, anytime you lose a life is terrible, but this pandemic was horrendous. And I wonder, is that maybe one of the reasons why you wanted to write this book uh, to re- you remind us uh, about the the fact that uh, we need these people. We needed them on 9-11. We need them uh, during a pandemic. We, you know, these are individuals that are so critical to uh, everything. Oh, sure. I mean, I wrote I wrote the book during the pandemic, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think I think as everything in life, we take things for granted. Like you take, there's always going to be a nurse. There's always going to be a police officer, a fireman. And I don't understand, I don't think people really understand um, how much these professions put into everybody else's lives, how we touch everybody else's lives. And I know that the main reason that you wanted to write the book was, as we were saying at the outset, the further this goes into the rearview mirror of history, the less and less... Uh, it is recognized and observed and memorialized, and it's something that is so important that we not forget. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think it's very important that the younger people are taught about what happened on that day, um, how how strong our nation was, well, still is, and how we all came together, and we all were united front. And I always believe that the good of people will outweigh the evil of people. You bring up a good point in in speaking with young people because obviously those who were not even born yet uh, on nine eleven are now of legal age are now twenty one you know in, in their early twenties. What do you what do you hear when you speak to young people about nine eleven? What is what is their uh, mindset when it comes to that? What do they think about it? What do you try to impart to them about September 11th? Well, um, I, I just, just to instill in them what happened, um, you know, the tragedy that happened from out, out, you know, out, sources out of this country of evil people. And just always try to remember and to always strive to do good in the world and don't let these these bad things like change perspective on other cultures and things like that. Yeah. And just to move forward and always, you know, have the knowledge that we learn from our past and hopefully, you know, hopefully it never happens anywhere again. And uh, just, just go on. And I, I believe they should, if they, you know, as they grow up 
and just to follow um, maybe a profession and service to help others. Yeah. One of the things, and you were talking about it uh, before, the, the thing that stands out to me 20 years later uh, that I choose to remember about 9-11 is that united uh, sense that we all had that you know we were truly a united country and especially again for young people who have come of age in the 20 years since uh, that is a very different America than what we have right now how important is it to recognize that part of the experience and maybe try to get back to that on some level Yes. Yeah. Well, I would hope that, um, I know we're very, um, you know, we're not united at all. We're very divided right now, but I just hope they've come to believe that it shouldn't take a tragedy yeah. to bring us all together, that we should always be together and listen to each other, you know, have, you know, and listen to each other and respect each other's opinions like and that. It shouldn't take a tragedy to bring us all together. Exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons why we wanted to highlight this book and because there's, there's been so much already written about 9-11. I can hear some people wondering, you know, what is it that yet another book has to add to the narrative? But again, with the perspective of 20 plus years gone by, uh, I, I think it's about time that we do have a reminder about all of this. Of course, of course. It's a, it's a short read um, one Tuesday morning, the book that I've written. And it's, a, it's very uplifting, I believe. And, and I hope people, if they do read it, they'll get that message. Catherine Debrino uh, was an emergency room nurse in Manhattan on the morning of September 11th, 2001, sharing her story in the new book, One Tuesday Morning. Do you have a website where folks can learn more about the book? Oh, no, unfortunately I do not, but it's available on Amazon.com. Okay, Catherine, thanks very much for taking the time. Certainly best of luck with the book. We appreciate it. Thank you. Well, the U.S. Army recently unveiled a campaign inspiring young Americans to take the first step to being all you can be as a soldier. It is called the First Steps campaign, appropriately enough. And Major Sam Winkler is a perfect example of where your first steps can take you in the U.S. Army. Uh, joining us this morning to explain her connection uh, to this. And Major, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, so tell us uh, more about the uh, First Steps campaign and what this means to you. Yeah, um, so the First Steps campaign is just our invitation to American youth to join us, to just consider taking a chance on the Army and just consider thinking about the opportunity of service and what, you know, where that experience could lead them. So we're simply just asking people to take a step towards us and see that if it's something that they'd like to do. Um, for me, I think it's just a really great representation of who we are at service that some of these first steps can lead to such incredible opportunities and experiences. You know, and as a young person, I just I remember that that's what I wanted, right? I wanted big experiences that were bigger than me. So we're just asking people to think about. You know, the, and one of the reasons why I ask, you know, what this means to its significant, the significance of this campaign to you is because you actually do have a rather interesting path to Army service yourself. And uh, along the way, you have achieved, I know, many firsts. Kind of share your story of your first steps and where that has led you. Yeah, thank you so much. So I 
joined the Army when I was 17. I'm a first-generation American. I was born and raised in Nepal, and then I moved to Texas. Um, and so I was at a college fair as a high school senior, and I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. And I ran into a recruiter who looked and that surprised me because I didn't quite realize that service was a path that I could take. And so I took a chance and I joined the Army as a paralegal. And I did that for a couple of years and I realized I really enjoyed it. Um, so I utilized a program that the Army had and I went to college for a couple of years and I came back as a second lieutenant and I've been here ever since. And I'm about to enter my 17th year of service. Now, you, among other things, helped lead a grassroots effort to transform how the Army supports families. How did you get involved in that effort to improve uh, Army life for parents? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so a couple of years ago, I was working in the Pentagon, and I was given a really great opportunity to travel around the Army and just listen to our soldiers um, just speak to them. And one of the things I realized is that we just had a real policy gap when it came to our Army parents. And so I went to Facebook to kind of listen in on more of these conversations, and I stumbled on a group called the Army Mom Life. And so, you know, I took some of those things that we heard, and a group of us wrote a paper and essentially turned it into Army senior leaders. And they really listened to us. And last year, the Army published an extremely comprehensive guide and update to what it means to be a parent in the Army. And I'm really thankful for it. You know, I think the Army is our people, and the Army is showing that, you know, you don't have to choose between being a parent and a soldier, and, and that really means a lot to me. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about how this came about, and I think for a lot of folks, they will say, well, that just sounds really amazing. We think of, of the U.S. Army as being this uh, giant uh, military hierarchy and uh, very slow moving and you know how can one person make just one small cog in a giant machine etc 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 um so folks might be kind of surprised to learn that a uh just a group of parents can affect such dramatic change but that's really just one example of things that might surprise people about the u.s army yeah i mean i think you know people generally understand that soldiers are just a part of American society, right? We're just Americans who choose to wear a uniform. And yeah. I think sometimes we forget that we're just regular people, um, that I'm just a, just a mom out here, you know, and I, I like to cook and I love to shop and I like to, uh, you know, wear makeup and I'm, I'm really into skincare. And I think sometimes we forget that we're just regular people mm-hmm. and, you know, that do we, regular jobs, right? I have friends who are amazing medical providers and cyber specialists. And then there's people like me who um, serve in a capacity where I do human resources. And that's how I take care of soldiers and serve my country. And I think sometimes we just forget that we're just people, people who wear a uniform. Again, Major Sam Winkler is with us talking about the U.S. Army's First Steps campaign to inspire young Americans to take the first step to be all you can be. And where do we get more information? Uh, yeah, we would love people to go to GoArmy.com and see if you know, there's something that interests them and maybe consider joining the Army and taking a step towards our community. Major Winkler, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM.
We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. A lot of uh, items here in the uh, broken news this morning. A big collection of uh, broken news. And we begin uh, really close to home in a heartwarming rescue operation on a uh, highway in Ross County, Ohio. The fate of a wayward piglet took an unexpected turn as it tumbled out of a transport truck. Do you hear about this? Piglet (laughs) fell out of a transport truck uh, right on uh, U.S. 35 in Ross County. The Ohio State Highway Patrol swiftly responded to reports of a piglet on the loose uh, on the highway. Dash cam footage shared by the State Highway Patrol shows troopers in pursuit of the tiny escapee. Uh, A piglet destined for a different journey than initially planned. (laughs) Put it that way. Uh, The uh, highway patrol quipped in a Facebook post, this little piggy did not make it to the market. Uh, The fortunate piglet, affectionately christened Pearl, found her way to safety, the Ross County Humane Society. And despite some road rash, uh, Pearl was deemed healthy and is currently under the loving care of a dedicated volunteer. So. <laughs> Little piglet made a break for it, and she's going to be just fine. <laughs> uh, another animal story here. This, uh, this is crazy, uh, but it has a happy ending. A lost dog at the Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport in Atlanta is finally headed home. A Chihuahua mix named Maya escaped from airport staff at the airport back in mid-August. And uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution now reports that the dog's owner, uh, it says the uh, dog's owner was denied entry after flying from the Dominican Republic, so she had to stay in an airport detention center uh, overnight. Uh, Maya, though, somehow escaped. Uh, but she has been found in good health uh, near the North Cargo uh, area of the airport uh, this past Saturday. So I can imagine a little Chihuahua mix at a big airport like Atlanta. Hartsfield-Jackson's a huge airport. You can see where it would be difficult to uh, catch up to the to the pup. But she's been found. She's safe. She's been reunited uh, with her owner. More airplane fun. Speaking of flying, a plane headed from Zurich to Spain arrived with all its passengers and none of its cargo. Can you imagine? The Swiss Airlines flight landed on Saturday, 111 people on board, but no bags. None of their luggage made it made it on board the flight. The luggage was left behind in Zurich according to the airline, due to a shortage of ground staff. (laughs) So they just took off. Did they know that there was no luggage on board of the plane? And they took off anyway? They flew all the people to Spain, but none of their luggage. Passengers had to wait for two hours uh, for their luggage to arrive on a different... uh, Well, they, they waited for two hours before even being informed that their belongings did not make it. Uh, to Spain <laughs> with them on the flight. Can you imagine hanging out at baggage claim for two hours wondering where your luggage is and you find out it wasn't on board the plane? One of the tourists said the ordeal ruined his vacation. I would think so. It's, uh, I, I don't know the uh, ending of that story. <laughs> Can you imagine the plane landing 
with all of the passengers and none of the cargo. Uh, speaking of plane fun, um, new members, uh, a pair of new members of the Mile High Club had their initiation interrupted. Uh, apparently, there's video footage showing a stunned flight crew member of an EasyJet flight catching two passengers <clears throat> in the act in the plane's lavatory, the bathroom of the plane. <laughs> now, that's got a tight quarters there. I don't know. That's uh, in any event, um, one of the individuals engaged in this particular activity joining the Mile High Club reached over and closed the open door after the, <laughs> after the crew member went to check on what was going on. Uh, the uh, flight headed for Ibiza uh, just a few days ago. At least two of the passengers didn't want to wait before uh, you know having some fun. They wanted to join the Mile High Club. So. The, uh, the couple was met by police upon arrival. It is unclear if any arrests were made. It is actually illegal to do that. It, it is actually against the law. You cannot do that. And uh, so, presumably, they're in a bit of trouble. But it gives uh, the whole airline, EasyJet, a whole new definition, doesn't it? It's, you really think about it? Uh, <laughs> let's, let's see. Um, from the international file, broken news. An orangutan at an Australian zoo horrified visitors when it brutally evicted a possum by launching it from the top of its enclosure after the wily pest had invaded its space. <laughs> a viral video shows the critter hurtling through the air and vanishing from view after, after being pitched from a tall tower at the Perth Zoo by uh, one of the orangutans. <laughs> the possum ends up in the orangutan enclosure. <laughs> and one of the orangutans just grabs it and flings it out of the... <laughs> Several per- people can be heard gasping and screaming in the background. The primate then emerges from the eclo- enclosure as if to check where the airborne possum had landed. When asked about what happened to the unfortunate marsupial, a zoo official to- told Yahoo News Australia, quote, I would presume it did not survive. <laughs> um... <laughs> They uh, went on to say, uh, obviously, the loss of any living creature saddens us here at the zoo, but it was a case of nature playing itself out. (laughs) I gotta watch that video. The orangutan just hurtling the possum out of its enclosure. Get out of here. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. And a couple of other items here. Um... This is another startling incident captured on video. A <laughs> a vandal unleashed some serious fury on a driverless car in San Francisco. They have these uh, driverless cruise, like taxi cabs in San Francisco. And um, apparently one person had had it with the autonomous vehicles and uh, struck late Sunday, repeatedly hammering the autonomous vehicle's windshield and advanced camera equipment. He just beat the snot out of it. (laughs) Rage against technology. Rage against the machine. Uh, San Francisco Police Sergeant Catherine Winters 
says a witness reported hearing a scream and observed the suspect vandalizing the vehicle before police officers could arrive. The vandal took off, leaving their identity and their motive shrouded in mystery. But I don't know if it's all that difficult to figure out the motive. <laughs> I think people had enough of these driverless vehicles. No arrests have been made uh, as of Monday, but the uh, video posted to social media uh, has uh, has gone viral, so hopefully they'll <laughs> figure out what in the world is going on there. And finally, uh, speaking of viral videos, I saw this video, and it is really amazing. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of wine throw- flowing through the streets of a small town in Portugal after two huge tanks filled with red wine uh, busted and uh, re- released all of the wine uh, into the village, F- literally flooded the village. Uh, videos uh, from the uh, village about 150 miles north of Lisbon show red rivers rushing down the sloping streets. The inundated town, home to about 2,000 residents, local media estimates the flood to be about 2.2 million liters, 600,000 gallons, enough wine to fill nearly 3 million wine bottles. Portuguese news media reported that the flood affected at least one basement. Can you imagine going down and seeing your basement flooded with wine? Residents were worried about the wine contaminating a nearby river, but the local fire department managed to block the flow and divert the flood away from the water and into a nearby field. In a translated statement on Facebook posted on Sunday, the company... Uh, which owned the two tanks that burst, apologized for the incident and the damage that was caused as a result. The winemaker also said that no one had been injured by the spill and that authorities were still investigating the cause. But it is amazing. It's, it is literally like a, you know, a, a flooding rain. It's like a flash flood of wine through the streets of the village. It is pretty amazing stuff. Uh, there you go. Uh, that is uh, today's broken news, an update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. Certainly not something you see every day. Uh, we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. WFIN says thank you for listening. And remember, you can listen around the clock on computer, smartphone, or tablet. Start your day with Chris Oaks and good mornings. And stay with us all day long. You also get CBS Sports Radio plus all of our locally originated sports programming. Listen live whenever you like at 1330 WFIN 95.5 FM and at WFIN.com. Where you can also grab our free mobile apps for iOS or Android. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. This uh, piece here actually speaks to uh, something we were talking about yesterday uh, and also a topic we were talking about this past Friday on the uh, program. Remember yesterday we were talking about the uh, Be Healthy Now uh, Coalition Community Health Fair coming up this weekend. And on Friday, we were speaking with the folks at the Cleveland Clinic about their 8th Annual Mention It survey uh, talking about uh, men's health specifically, and a lot of guys uh, think that we're living a healthy lifestyle, but we're really not <laughs> as not the way that we think we are. Uh, and and we brought up the fact that uh, a lot of it has to do that we, uh, especially guys in this case, uh, tend to avoid going to the doctor for our regular checkups. And uh, this uh, survey shows that it's not just guys, it's all of us. 41% of Americans say that they put off 
going to the doctor. And uh, that includes 38% of people between the ages of 26 to 34, 39% of 35 to 54-year-olds not going to the doctor in the past five years. Have not seen a doctor in the past five years. Um, Again, those regular checkups are important. A survey of 2,000 Americans found that being potentially unable to afford medical care is the top reason why people avoid going to the doctor. 52% cite that. Other reasons for avoiding the doctor, avoiding those regular checkups, include anxiety about potential procedures or tests that might be ordered. 40% uh, worry about you know being poked and prodded and all of that. Uh, 39% uh, cite the fear of receiving bad news of a potentially serious diagnosis. And, of course, the response to that is that not knowing is not going to make it go away. It's only going to get worse, and that's going to be a bigger problem if you don't. But 39% worry about getting bad news. Um, 39% say they're just exhausted. All of the other responsibilities between parenting and work, caretaking, all of that, they're just exhausted. People are also much more concerned that they won't be able to afford their treatment uh, this year. Not just afford going to the doctor, but uh, not being able to afford uh, the types of treatment that the doctor recommends. Uh, All reasons why, according to this survey, we avoid going to the doctor. Well, September is Baby Safety Month, and joining us this morning is nationally recognized parenting expert and mom of three, Amanda Mushro, with some advice, especially for uh, new parents, first-time parents. Amanda, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So, obviously, uh, as any parent knows, taking care of a baby, especially newborns, especially for first-time parents, can be overwhelming so where do we start what should parents tackle first yes it can be so overwhelming so i really want parents just to think about how can we keep our baby safe and secure at home in the car and really anywhere that we're taking our baby on those adventures with us uh and so how do we do that i mean what uh um is is there a routine? Is there you know something that we should get into uh, to keep uh, our babies uh, safe, happy, healthy, all of that? So first off, when it comes to those routines that are really going to keep our baby feeling safe and secure, we love bath time. My kiddos always loved it when they were little. And my top tip is Baby Magic's new Delicate Wash and Lotion Duo. So their 98% naturally derived formulas are packed with wholesome ingredients such as colloidal oat, shea butter, and aloe. And they feature a light scent of almond blossom. So it really soothes the skin and it leaves this like really light, sweet smell. I absolutely love it. And this delicate line, it's hypoallergenic. It's dermatologist and pediatrician recommended. And it's made without any harmful additives, making it safe for baby-sensitive skin. And this line is found exclusively on Amazon. All right. Uh, you mentioned car safety, and I know that is I- incredibly important. You have uh, recommendations when it comes to kids and cars. Yes. You want a safe car seat, but also 
why not one that has really impressive technology? So I am so obsessed with this car seat. This is the Cybex Cloud G Luxe infant car seat. It's the perfect combination of comfort, safety, and convenience. It features best-in-class German-engineered safety features and 45% more recline than comparable infant car seats when used as part of a travel system. So you know that your little one is safe, but they're also nice and cozy into their car seat. And Cloud G Lux's advanced safety features can reduce crash forces up to 30%. And its sensor-safe technology is amazing. So it will send a mobile app alert if your child unbuckles a chest clip, if they are in the back seat and they become too warm or too cold, or if the driver unintentionally leaves the child in the back seat, you will get mm. a mobile app alert. How amazing is that? Yeah, very, uh, very important. And I like uh, what you mentioned. I think the thing that uh, stood out to me is making sure that baby is comfortable. Because again, ask any parent who's been through it, uh, you know, if kids uh, are not comfortable in their car seats, that whole car ride is going to be very unpleasant. So safety, yes. <laughs> safety and comfort uh, going hand in hand is very important as well. Any other steps that uh, parents uh, should take with respect to keeping their babies safe? So I have a four-year-old, so he's basically into just about everything. So <laughs> if you're looking to keep your little one safe from getting access to drawers and cabinets, check out Safety First Adhesive Cabinet and Drawer Latches. So installing the lock is so easy, which I think is great is a key for parents, right? You just peel and stick. You don't even need any tools for this. It's perfect for renters or if you don't want to damage your cabinets. And then you can also keep it in the unlock mode for when you're cooking and you need access to your cabinet and drawers. So great option, easy, easy installation. <laughs> I mean, it's tough for and, parents, right? And, and keeping me away from the tools makes sure that I stay safe as well. So that's there that's a go. whole different <laughs> different story. Any other uh, reminders for Baby Safety Month that we can pass along? Yes, you want to be sure to keep stairs off limits. And you can do that with the Baby's First, I'm sorry, Safety First, Ready to Install Gate. It features a no-trip design and can be used at the top of stairs, the bottom of stairs, and even in between rooms, so really anywhere in your house. There's no measuring, no marking, and you don't even need to level. That's how easy it is to put this gate in. The Safety First Ready to Install Gate comes out of the box in one piece. And you can ensure a hassle-free installation with a one-hand operation um, and the swing door open. It's really easy to pass through. So if you have little ones in your home, you really need one of these gates. Again, uh, September Baby Safety Month, a nationally recognized parenting expert and mom of three, Amanda Mushro, is with us this morning. Amanda, where do we get more information? You can head to tipsontv.com. Amanda, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage. And that, of course, is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow morning, we're already hearing reminders about getting our annual flu shot, the latest COVID booster set to be released this week. What's the outlook for this year's sniffles season? Until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.